Today we turn in God's word to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We're in week two of a short series on marriage. The elders and I talk often about the spiritual diet for God's people, and we believe that at this time, this series can, we pray, be helpful to all of us, married, single, widowed, divorced, not only in our marriages, but in our relationships as we seek to love the Lord and one another more and more. Genesis chapter 2. We welcome those visiting with us. On page 4, there's an outline if you'd like to follow along. Hear now God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Do you remember the day you were married? The sights, the sounds. I'm looking at my brother-in-law. He, uh, it was so hot. I felt bad for the guy. I actually, I didn't marry my brother-in-law, but I, I did do the wedding. And, I, and as I was there in front, my sister and he were standing. It was just sweat pouring down his face. He was kind of getting a little dizzy even. It was, it was a very difficult moment. I'm not sure he remembers much of what was said. <laughs> the joy and the celebration of the day. The sights, the sound, the people, the family, the loved ones. When you look back at old wedding photographs, I'm I'm sure you're struck by this. How many people now have died, perhaps, and are no longer with us? Friends that you once had, family members that you miss. Weddings and looking back at them can also lead us to think about the sorrow that may be brought to our minds when we think of this. Maybe the sorrow of wanting to be married but not being married. Maybe the sorrow of a spouse that has died to gone and gone to be with the Lord. Maybe the sorrow of a marriage that didn't last. Maybe the sorrow of an ongoing, heartache-filled marriage. Weddings are big events in our lives. They're big events in the Bible. In fact, without Genesis 1 to 2, the rest of the Bible doesn't make sense. And without a proper biblical understanding of what marriage is about, the rest of the Bible in our lives actually don't make sense. 
because the Bible begins with this wedding between a sinless man and woman, Adam and Eve. But like we saw last week, because of the sin of the first Adam, because this marriage failed in a sense, in that sense of what he was called to do, there was the, there's the need of a last Adam. There's the need of one who comes to obey where the first Adam disobeys, to give life to those who are dead in sin, to come and to buy back his wayward bride. Jesus was at the wedding at Cana. That wine that he made must have been the best wine ever in the history of the world, water to wine. He celebrated at that wedding. And he came to purchase a bride. And one day, as we look forward to the consummation of all things, we will enjoy the fullness of joy with the Lord Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we want to look in these weeks together at marriage. Today we want to look at a foundational definition of the covenant of marriage, and to do that, we go back to Genesis 2. First, we see the man is alone. If you notice in the text, Adam here is working. Kids, work is good before the fall, and it will be in the new heavens and new earth, and Adam had a job to do. What was his job, children? To name all the animals. Now, Adam was not Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> it's not like he just said aardvark and zebra and randomly picked those names. These names were given because he carefully studied the animals. So the name had something to do with what the animal was like. Adam's intellectual capacities before the fall are beyond what we can imagine. It is mind-boggling to think. And as Adam is going about naming these animals, everything is good. There's nothing wrong with Adam. There's nothing broken in the Garden of Eden. And there's nothing lacking in Adam. That's important to understand. There's no sin yet at this point. And yet, God says something very interesting in verse 18. Do you see that? He says something is not good. Wow. Everything God made is good. God said after day six, it is very good, but now God says something is not good. What's not good here, children? The fact that Adam is alone. What does that not mean? It's really important to understand, loved ones. This does not mean that if you are unmarried, you are somehow incomplete. Really important to say that. The Apostle Paul was not married. He showed in his words in life, not everyone is called to be married. So th this is not saying you're incomplete if you're single. And as a church, we should never make someone who's single or widowed or divorced feel like they're in a different place spiritually. Not at all the case. That's not what God is saying. What's he, what he is saying here is that none of the animals are suitable for Adam. Kids, have you ever tried to talk to your dog? Yeah, we talk to our dog, sit and come and right. You talk to your dog, but does, does your dog talk back? Not usually, <laughs> not ever. I would hope, not in the way that you talk. None of these companions are for Adam. None of the, or none of these animals are a companion for Adam. God is preparing Adam for something. He's comparing, uh, preparing him for a helper. You notice that the woman is to be the helper of the man. This might surprise you. Is this really true? 
Helper is a beautiful position for a woman to be in. Women, I want you to hear this. She is a woman of great dignity. She's not inadequate. She's not inferior. She's not a slave. She's not a junior assistant. A helper is one who powerfully supplies for someone what they can't provide for themselves. Helper. The word is used later in the Bible to talk about God. God is our helper. The word is used to talk about a military situation where you've got a battle going on and you're way overnumbered by the enemy. And you need what? You need help. God comes to the help of his people. Eve, as the helper to Adam, is not degrading at all. She brings into his life a certain kind of strength. The word here means she is a helper who's suitable or fit. It means like, opposite. You say, how can it be both? If two pieces of a puzzle are identical, one man says, they don't fit, do they? On the other hand, if they're just crazily different, they don't fit either. So the word means suitable, just right is the idea. That's what Eve is for Adam. That's what Adam is for Eve, just right. She is a helper so that they together can serve in fullness in the relationship together. There is an equality here. Men and women equal, made in the image of God. Men and women after the fall, equal in their need for a Savior, born dead in sin. Men and women in Christ, equal. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. Equality in salvation. Yes, there are differences. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. But we have to begin here and see what a blessing it is that God has made the man and the woman in this way. Secondly, how was the woman created? Well, after naming the animals, Adam realizes, I don't want to be married to an aardvark. There's got to be something better than an aardvark. So God causes deep, heavy sleep to fall on Adam. Divine anesthesia, similar to the thing that happened to Abram. Remember when he fell into the deep sleep? God passed through those pieces of animal in Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abram. Here, God does surgery on Adam. It's an operation, kids. This is not metaphorical. Adam and Eve were real historical people. This really happened. Imagine this, kids. He's asleep, and God takes out of him a rib. You have ribs? Kids, you want to point at your rib? Right? Is it there? It's there. A long, moist, curved rib with fluid and marrow. God takes that out and handcrafts the woman. He builds her out of the rib of Adam with the same bone, the same DNA. Adam created out of the dust of the ground. Eve created out of the man. Here's Matthew Henry who wrote a few hundred years ago. I love this quote. The woman is not made out of Adam's head to top him. She's not made out of his feet to be trampled by him. She's made out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart 
to be beloved by him. Every aspect of her is perfect. Body, soul, physical, mental, moral excellence. And here they are, the first royal family, called by God, as we remember from last week, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to spread the temple of the Garden of Eden to the whole earth. God gave marriage in creation as a good gift for his people, as a good gift for the whole world. Children were to be born in this family. And a family is the structure still today that enriches society, contributes to the orderly function of society. Procreation is an important reason for marriage, but this is really important, loved ones. Companionship is the fundamental motive here. Roman Catholics say that marriage is primarily for procreation, not primarily for companionship. I want to humbly submit, as this one writer says, that that's not right. The woman is presented as man's partner and counterpart. Do you notice here, nothing is said yet about child-rearing. She is valued in herself alone. That is crucial for us loved ones. Because maybe you have gone through or are still facing infertility. Fertility does not make a woman valuable to her husband in and of itself. She is in herself valuable to him, whether or not the Lord blesses him and her with children. We pray for those that are not able to have children. Barrenness today does not mean a woman is cursed. That is crucial for us to understand. Be fruitful and multiply doesn't mean don't stop ever having kids. Maybe you have one child, maybe two, maybe you have five or six or seven or eight. Whatever the Lord has blessed you with, you thank God for that. But we need to be careful here that we read what the text is saying. In redemptive history, the point is God works in the context of family and covenant. God promised a seed to Adam and Eve after the fall. He promised a savior to them. And he did the same to Abraham and the 12 tribes. He makes a new spiritual family in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the husband-wife relationship is the most basic of human institutions. Third, let's look at what this covenant looks like. The covenant now is made. God finishes his work. Adam wakes up. His side might hurt a bit. (laughs) The rib came out of him. And then God brings the woman to the man. The first wedding that ever happened. God himself walks the woman down the aisle. And those of us fathers with daughters are emotional about this. Those of you who have done this very thing, walking your daughter down the aisle, those of you who have little young daughters thinking about the day that may come when you do that. And what does Adam do? He sings. He sings a wedding song. This is Adam saying words before the fall 
that are the, old, the first quoted words in the Bible from a human. He sees Eve and he explodes into art. He says, now, finally, this is what I've been looking for. She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He is full of love, affection for his wife. In verse 23, he does some more naming. Do you notice that? He names her woman. In the Hebrew, the words for man and woman are very similar. So it's kind of like lion and lioness, meaning he restates his own name as embedded in hers. The Hebrew word for man, ish. The Hebrew name for woman, isha. He is saying here that this woman has been given to me by God as a great gift. And verse 24, do you notice this? Look at that passage, children. Look at verse 24. Did that ever take place with Adam? Did he ever leave his father and mother? No. Isn't that interesting? Adam's the first man. Eve's the first woman. Moses, who's the author of the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, adds this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus picks up on it. Matthew 19 Jesus quotes right from this passage. He says, Have you not read that he who created them, who's that? God, made them in the beginning, male and female. And he said, who said? God said. Talking about the inspiration of the Bible. So Jesus quotes from Genesis 2 and says, This is God's word. God is speaking here. He then says, They are no longer two, the man and the woman, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man, what? Separate. As you look at the history of Israel, this did not happen, leaving father and mother. One commentator brings this out. The custom for them in the people of God, in Israel, was for a man to marry and stay in his father's house. Think of Jacob and his sons. The woman would join with her husband's family. That's not true anymore. In fact, if that happens, most likely the marriage is going to be in rough shape. (laughs) This is saying, men, your first loyalty is to your wife, not your parents. Same with the woman. When husbands and wives fail to leave their parents many marriages crumble. Now, don't forsake your parents. (laughs) Don't dishonor your parents. But when you get married, your new home is primary. One man told me this. I'm not going to name his name, but I want you to listen to his question. He said, when my wife and I went to pre-marriage counseling, the question, why do you want to be married, never came up. How about all of you, you don't have to raise your hand. Did that question come up in your pre-marriage counseling? Why do you want to be married? Did you think about that yourself? How about those who are married right now? Another question. What do you love most about your spouse? How would you answer that? You might be tempted to say, I love how handy he is. I love that he can build swimming pools. I love how artistic and fashionable she is in her cooking. I know those are stereotypes, so I'm not saying, believe me, 
I'm not handy. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you know what Sinclair Ferguson actually says? What do you love most about your spouse? What I love most about my wife, he says, is that I am married to her. And in the covenant of marriage, I enjoy her and all that she is. Hold fast, cleave, cling. That's the word used here. This is covenant language. God stuck to Israel despite Israel's sin. This is telling us marriage is not a private matter. It's a public declaration before God and his people and witnesses. It's a covenant. Vows are given. Do you remember your vows? Do you remember what you said that day? This is not a temporary arrangement that you just kind of back the truck out of. It's a covenant for life as long as you both shall live. Sometimes people imagine that they need to find Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Right. We dream that if we look closely enough, we'll find that person. But, as one writer says, we always marry the wrong person. What does he mean? If we pause, we'll know that we're the wrong person too. Now, clearly the Bible says there's some people you must not marry. Girls, who can you marry if you are going to marry someone someday? Who can you marry? A Christian boy. Boys, who can you marry someday? A Christian girl. But the truth is, this writer goes on, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Even if we marry the right person, give it a while and it'll change. Your marriage may end up as a nightmare. I hope not. Or it may be way better than you thought. You may look back and think those first few years, I was so selfish and pig-headed and I'm still selfish, but now I see it a little bit more and God is changing us and this marriage is way better than we deserve by the grace of God. If nothing else, marriage itself will change us. The other extreme is this. Young people say, I'm never going to get married because I don't know any people who are happy who are married. We don't want that to be what you think, and we don't want that to be what you see among the church family. We need to show young people that marriage is good and we need to celebrate, by God's grace, staying married as much as we celebrate getting married. But the point this author is making is no two people are compatible. That's a lie. There may be certainly outward forms of compatibility, and some non-Christians you know might be more outwardly and personality-wise compatible than Christians by the common grace of God. That can very often happen. Flaws that once seemed tiny or endearing at first now seem larger. When two sinners say, I do, they begin to live in an intimate relationship where everything matters. The fault lines of character are revealed. And we begin to see that we're in the same space together all the time, especially the last year. All together, all the time. Sometimes without breaks. Marriage puts you close together. So what's going to happen? You're going to butt heads. She's going to see things in you that you don't see. You're going to see things in her that she doesn't see. And we have a split second to react. What are we going to do? How are we going to 
respond to this conflict that happens. But we need to remember marriage is not designed so much to bring you into conflict with your spouse, but actually to bring you into confrontation with your own sin as God is using your spouse by his spirit to make you more like his son. What happens then when people are married and their perhaps utopian expectations are dashed? Many times people think divorce will solve the problem. But that's not the answer. God calls us to press on, gives us the grace to endure. Love endures. Period. Now, I need to say this. There are biblical reasons to end a marriage. If someone is in a marriage where the spouse is committing adultery, where there's ongoing hardness of heart, physical abuse, abandonment, the Bible talks about that, God does not say you just have to endure that. That is not what the scriptures teach. There are biblical reasons to end a marriage. And we must love those wounded by divorce and help them as they're perhaps going through brutally abusive situations with gentleness, loving them, listening to them, praying for them, being an ear for them. There's an order here. Do you see this, children? It says leave, cleave, and then interweave. (laughs) Don't reverse the order. To cleave is to be cemented. Two bricks joined together that you can't pull apart. And what happens here? They become one flesh. That happens when the vows were said two years ago, 50 years ago. But it continues through your life of marriage. The woman and man are one as the believer is united to Christ. What's marriage about? Covenant keeping. The vows. It's saying, I have seen the ugly and the crazy parts of you, and I'm staying. We all have ugly and crazy, but by the grace of God, we're enduring. Marriage is not a sacrament conveying divine grace. That's another thing we need to kind of put out there. What is it? Marriage is a picture of the love of Christ for his church and the church loving and submitting to and respecting Christ and honoring him. That's why marriage is so important, loved ones. It's a view that the world gets into Christ and his love for his church. So what's the goal in marriage? We talked about before, why did you want to get married? What do you love about your spouse? What's the goal? What's happening? As you go day by day, what are you thinking about? What do you hope from your marriage? The goal, loved ones, is oneness in Christ. In heart, in trust, in love, in purpose, in thinking. Yes, physical oneness but also intellectual, emotional, spiritual oneness, that we would be one with one another and one with Christ by the grace of God, that we would carry each other's burdens, that we would delight in one another, that we would use the we language. Do you know the we language? Because of the fall, marriage becomes two-ness. She said, he said, blame game. The we language says, how can we 
together? How can our marriage glorify God? Oneness in Christ is the goal. The purpose of communication in marriage, then, as we move to apply these things a bit, is so much higher and better than just getting along. As one writer says, it is an all-encompassing relational intimacy. You can be sitting together on the same couch and be a thousand miles apart. Or you can be a thousand miles apart and much closer together in oneness. Communication and fellowship. We easily become distracted. We drift. That's not what God wants in our marriages. So you see how this is important for all Christian fellowship? Maybe you're single, widowed, divorced. You might not be married. Christian fellowship is an expression of both love and humility. J.I. Packer says, it springs from a desire to bring benefit to others, coupled with a sense of my weakness and frailty and need. It has a double motive, fellowship, in marriage or any relationship. The wish to help and to be helped, to edify and to be edified. It has a double aim, to receive, to do, and to help. It's a corporate seeking by Christians to know God better through sharing life together. Because what we are together is much more than alone. That's true in a Bible study. As the men got together yesterday, the insight of this brother and the thought of this one enriched the study so much. I'm sure you women know and experience the same things. What a blessing to have Christian fellowship. And our marriage should be the foundation of that. We should be open and intimate with each other. And yet, because of sin, what, what happens? We're self-focused, defensive, self-conscious in a way that is overly introspective, sometimes fearful and proud. Our sin tempts us to hide Withhold, withdraw, and avoid in marriage and in all of our relationships, including a church. By the grace of God, we are to be open in our communication, sharing our struggles, our thoughts, our fears, our anxieties. Pride is a huge hindrance to marriage, as God wants it to be. Self-confident, self-exalting, self-protecting pride where we just want to voice our own opinion, like the Proverbs say, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Pride loves to talk, exalting in itself. Pride is unteachable. Pride has learned everything it wants to know. I don't need any help. I sinfully judge others. And I don't need a spouse, I just need an audience. That's pride. God Resist the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility asks questions. Humility listens. Humility puts energy into listening. You know, we, we all, especially pastors, don't listen well often. <laughs> so we're all in this. I'm in this with you. But true listening is not just not talking. If most of our listening is spent thinking about what we're going to say in response or running through 
the list of sports games that we want to watch or whatever else we're thinking about. We're not really listening. That's why Jesus said, remember, he who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. So there are people who are listening to Jesus but not, not, not listening. They weren't really hearing. It was just this noise, like Charlie Brown's teacher. Blah, 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 blah. It wasn't actually connecting to their hearts. As we love each other in marriage, asking good questions draws out of our spouse what's in her heart or his heart. As Paul Tripp says, gentle talk comes from the person who is speaking not because of what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. This applies to anger. We read in the law of God today about anger. Remember what Paul Tripp said? We quoted him last week. If you could go back 50 years to the day before your wedding to your wife and tell yourself something, what would you tell yourself? Do you remember what he said? He said, I would tell myself the primary problem in my marriage is never going to be my wife. It's me. It's my sin. Now, if you are being abused, that is not talking to you. You need to hear that. Because countless people have been bullied by that sort of thinking. What else did Paul Tripp say? I became a very angry man in our marriage. I was in the process of destroying my life and my marriage out of my anger. As we reflect on this, we remember that there is a righteous anger. God himself sees things in the world that are not right, and there's a proper anger. David Paulison talks about that. But most of our anger is what? It's either passive and aggressive or outwardly volatile and bitter and brutal. Where we need to repent of these sins, we need to ask God, give me grace to see where I have perhaps lived in bitterness or passive aggressiveness or outward anger. So here's an example. A mother and a father, they're at each other's throats. Or they're going after one of the kids. When you are angry, ask this question, what am I defending? What am I attacking? So if mom and dad are going after each other or the kids, they're perhaps intimidating them. They're hurting their hearts or hurting each other's hearts. And why? It's perhaps because they didn't get something that they wanted. The opposite of anger is not to just stuff it, but to repent to your wife or kids and say, I was angry. I have sinned against you with my words, with my heart. I've tried to hurt you, and I have sinned against God. Forgive me for my sin. Going to the kids and saying, kids, when you were disobeying, that, that's wrong, yes, but daddy sinned against you. When I raised my voice, that's sin, and I confess it to you and to God. And then talking to them about their own hearts and, and saying, kids, it's not me against you. You were disobeying mom and dad. You were fighting with each other. You were angry at each other, kids. It's not me against you. It's me and you by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God against this sinful disobedience that you need to repent of as I do by the gospel. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. Fourth, the marriage is consummated. As you, before God, made vows, you promised to be faithful to each other, what? If poverty and disease should come upon you. You vowed to be faithful to each other if you meet a more attractive, intelligent, compassionate person. Women, you vowed to be faithful if your husband loses his job, his esteem before men, his mental faculties, his youthful vigor. You committed to him even when he does not love you as God has called him to, to love you, as Christ loves the church. He vowed to be faithful to you, women, if you lose your beauty, charm, or tenderness. His commitment remains steadfast even when you, women, are disrespectful. Through it all, you remain one flesh. And as you made those vows, and think about them today, we need to flee to Christ for grace, all of us, for our failure to love one another like this. Because before the fall, they were naked and unashamed. Perfect in unity, body and soul. Sex was a gift of God to them before the fall. The attraction they had for each other. This came from God. Because of the fall, it's distorted. After the fall, they're naked and full of shame. After the fall, man wants the pleasure of sex without the responsibilities of the covenant of marriage. After the fall, apart from the grace of Christ, men and women are destroyers, destroying families and relationships and trust and the covenant by their selfishness. After the fall, we are spiritual adulterers, all of us, living for self or career or entertainment, and that's where the gospel comes in. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you've been enslaved to pornography. Maybe your marriage has become a disaster. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we look to Jesus to renew our hearts in Christ. Today might be the day that you or someone online is converted. We pray by the grace of God if you're not in Christ. Today might be the day that one of your, maybe your spouse is converted. Why did God come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? to get his wayward bride back. Jesus is full of grace, life, and salvation. God, after the fall, covers their nakedness and shame with animal skins, pointing forward to the last Adam who comes in the fullness of time, who lives a perfect life, who pays the penalty for our sins, who takes a bride for himself, the Son of God left the courts of glory with his Father to come and seek out his bride. On the cross, he took our shame. He took our lust. He took our anger. He took our selfishness. He took our pride. Those sins were nailed to Christ on the cross. He took our judgment. He gives us his righteousness. He's the perfect last Adam. He obeys what the first Adam failed to obey. He fulfilled his vows. He kept the covenant of works. We are that bride he loves. He didn't marry you because you're beautiful or virtuous or obedient. He loved us when we were adulterous and ugly. 
hating God because of the darkness of our hearts. He died for sinners, and he died for us and loves us to make us lovely. You have become his. He has betrothed you to himself forever. You live in the joy of being married to a perfect husband who has washed you with his blood. He has made you clean. He is making you more like himself. He's sanctifying you. He will give us the patience we need to love one another, to over and over again look at our spouse and say, I've sinned against you and you've wronged me, but I'm loved enough by Jesus that the one who has forgiven me an infinite debt of sin is giving me grace to forgive you, to love you, to press on in joy with you as we look to that final wedding day when we fall into his arms, when everything will be made right, when all things will be made new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, who has never let his bride, the church, down, who loved us, who, died, who was crucified on the cross for us, who will glorify us. We rejoice and we give you the glory, O oh God, as we long for that day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.